to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School, University of Oxford, and Kantar, the marketing insights and consulting company. In each episode, we'll have a frank discussion with industry experts to help brands and business leaders navigate the changing landscape of marketing. Hello, my name is Walker Smith. I'm the Chief Knowledge... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Officer for Brand and Marketing with Cantar, as well as an author, speaker, blogger, and video blogger. Hello again, and welcome to the Future Proof Podcast. I'm Walker Smith, and my guest today is Joel Benenson, the CEO of Benenson Strategy Group, one of the leading political and corporate strategy firms in the world. And frankly, you've probably seen Joel on TV talking about politics and business. He's the only Democratic pollster to play a leading role in three winning presidential campaigns, including President Clinton's 96 re-election campaign and both of President Obama's campaigns during which he was the lead pollster. He was also senior strategist for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Joel has been recognized as pollster of the year by the American Association of Political Consultants. He worked as communications director for New York Governor Mario Cuomo, and before that was a reporter for the New York Daily News. He did a stint at FCB and now plays a wide-ranging role within WPP, of which the Benenson Strategy Group is a very big part. I really can't think of anyone better suited for our topic today about politics and business. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Walker. Great that you can be here. Uh, you know, Joel, another political season is all on top of us right now, and it's taking place beneath the dark cloud of the coronavirus. But politics is still very important. And I think if you could sum up the state of politics right now in just a word or two, our, our listeners would be interested in your view of where politics stands in America today. Well, I think if I had to do it in two words, I'd probably say chaotic and unpredictable. We're in uncharted waters here. We are, you know, obviously at a, the tail end of a Democratic primary contest that I suspect is going to wind down pretty soon. But uh, I think everybody in the nation is glued to their TV sets and uh, focused right now on uh, on this virus. And 
uh, as they should be. And so they're a great, uh, you know, if you're the person in power, as President Trump is at the moment, there are great risks, but great downsides as well. Um, you know, when we uh, worked with President Obama in 2008, you know, we knew in early 2008, while we were still running, and we expected we were going to win, but he would be inheriting the worst financial crisis in the history of the country since the Great Depression. So, you know, those things throw uh, uh, monkey wrenches into the works that uh, put you in uncharted territory. And I think, you know, how people navigate that kind of terrain actually has a tremendous impact on the outcome. Yeah, you know, I guess two months ago, there was probably no bigger topic uh, in the world than politics, particularly in this presidential season. And now, of course, everything has been overshadowed by the coronavirus, which is affecting businesses in very, very hard ways. And, and I guess that's compounded by this old adage that business and politics don't mix. But I think it's hard for businesses to avoid that these days. People seem to want it. President Trump seems to engage in it. And you've worked in both of these domains, uh, business yeah. and politics. What, what kind of challenges do you see that politics brings to bear on companies these days? I think the starting point uh, in, in, that, in this kind of discussion is that the whole way I think consumers view businesses and corporations today is different. I think this is not just a transactional relationship anymore. We have seen over the last decade, certainly, if not longer, consumers and, and people and voters taking the measure of the character and values of the companies that they do business with. And that's true whether you're talking about food service companies, auto companies, uh, big retailers, financial services companies. They want to know that companies uh, more and more are driven by a set of values. You know, you see it in you know, if you think about changes, Walmart and Dick's Sporting Goods, massive retailers who are impervious to politics most of the time, had to make adjustments in whether they were going to sell certain kinds of munitions or weapons anymore. Uh, you're seeing that this is bubbling from the bottom up. This isn't coming from the top down. Consumers have expectations that are different. And I think whether it's a, a, the politics of the moment and how companies deal with this crisis with their workforces today or other issues that creep into the social dialogue, businesses have to be more responsive to that. It's not just the transaction anymore. The, the measure of your company is going to be in your character and values that you exhibit in the public domain. You, know, you may recall a few years ago when North Carolina passed a bathroom bill that was seen as discriminatory against mm -hmm. LGBT Americans. I mean, you had outcries from groups as diverse as PayPal and the NCAA, and they had to back down. So that's an environment that I would say doesn't fit into the traditional construct of what we mean when we're talking about politics and business. But I think it does show that we've got a more activist consumer base that will treat many things as political, and they all play back. Uh, to your character and values as a company, and you've got to pay more attention to that than ever before. You know, Joel, I think it's interesting that you talk about that in the context of consumer reactions to this and how sometimes it can cause companies to back down. But, you know, when you look at a lot of companies, they're trying to succeed by growing their customer base, which sometimes they can only do by appealing across the aisle or engaging people of different kinds of uh, ideologies. And, and the environment you describe seems to suggest that companies have got to come down on one side versus the other. How, how do you work with companies who are struggling this choice between 
trying to satisfy both or, or trying to make a stance on one side or the other? I think taking sides in politics is very high risk for, for businesses. And we do a lot of work with corporations. And I think people uh, and voters in America, by and large, except for those who are at the extreme uh, left, you know, really understand that, that businesses large and small have to conduct business. What they want to know is, are you doing it in an ethical way, as, ethical, as ethically as you possibly can? They know that businesses exist to make money. But now I think one of the things that people judge companies by is, how do you treat your workers? Are you paying them a decent wage? Are you giving them health benefits? I think those things are all part of the political discussion day in and day out. And I think companies, as they're concerned, and we do a lot of work in the field of corporate reputation, one of the number one ways in which people, voters, Americans, <laughs> uh, uh, measure companies, it starts with how do you treat your employees often? Not just me as a consumer, but are you a decent employer? Are you paying them a decent wage? You know, some companies responded very quickly in, during the coronavirus by demonstrating that they would pay their employees, that they would continue to pay benefits. Some companies like LinkedIn, they opened up, um, I think, for free somewhere about 15 or 16 learning courses so people could take tips on how to be productive or build relationships when you're not face-to-face. -face. So I think companies are very in tune with what their public is demanding of them you know, not just when they're engaged in the in the transaction, but really when it comes to demonstrating your your values as a company and whether or not you'll align yourself with the people who you want and seek as your customers or not. You know, Joel, you mentioned the coronavirus and and companies trying to respond to their employees in this context. This will kind of give our listeners a clue, I guess, as to when we're recording this podcast. Just this past Sunday, there was an opinion piece in the New York Times that had a graphic showing the number of workers at very large companies that were without paid sick leave at those companies. So clearly this is becoming more visible. Do you think the coronavirus uh, is going to elevate these kinds of issues uh, with companies, or, or do you think uh, this is just a dynamic that is, is proceeding irrespective of, of something like this uh, occurring at the same time? Oh, I think it's going to be elevated because what you have when you have a crisis like this in the country, you know, it goes back to the main point I made before, right? This is going to expose your character and values as a company loudly and clearly to your employee base, to your consumer base. If you're not treating your employees right, your employees are gonna to take to the web and they're gonna be telling a narrative and a story out there that is going to affect you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that you do business with. So, and it's gonna affect people in the communities where you employ people. Neighbors who don't work for companies uh, are gonna be really kind of ticked off if you're not treating their fellow community members the way they should be in this situation. So I think for companies, particularly larger companies, labs. big mid-sized company, you know, we call a mid-sized company is still a very large company. It's not your local mom and pop shop. So I think the pressures on those larger companies is going to be greater even than it is on the smaller businesses. I think to begin with, people have a lot more empathy and sympathy for that local store. They see them as neighbors. They see them as community members. They will understand uh, more readily the pressures those folks are going to be under to stay, keep their heads above water because they're going to feel we're all in this together. Uh, that will be less true for the larger businesses and corporate entities, whether you're a, a national bank, whether you're one of the giant retailers that I just mentioned, 
Well, it's interesting you mentioned large and small companies because that's part of the context within which all this decision-making takes place, the community presence. Uh, part of this other context is just political polarization, and there's been a lot written about that in the last few years. It's been a topic for a long time now. How do you see polarization? You think it's stronger than ever? I mean, there is some debate about that among academics. And, and when you think about it, when you see it and work with some of the candidates that you uh, have worked for, what, what do you mean by polarization? And how do you think businesses need to be responsive to that? Well, I mean, political polarization stands apart from, uh, <laughs> from uh, the, the corporate world to a, to a great degree. Yes, I do believe we are more polarized than we ever have been before, but I think it's been brewing for decades. I think we have, through a host of uh, political dynamics, going back to the 1990s, I think, you know, the Republican Party in 1998, Newt Gingrich, basically made a pact with the Christian coalition made up largely of white evangelical conservatives for that group to be their organizing arm to help turn voters out. So they both came to a, a pack that was unprecedented for extreme engagement of, of groups from a particular religious perspective, getting involved very directly with a one political party, largely around the choice issue, but around other cultural issues that those two parties decide, decided to make alignment on. If you look at the national electorate today, white evangelicals comprise about 26 to 28% of the electorate. And the Republicans in every national election, midterm or presidential, have won those voters by about 75 to 25. That has created a massive alignment, but Republicans have lost everybody else, the other 75% in every election. Now they don't lose every election, because Democrats have to win them by a certain margin to succeed. But that's as profound a polarization as we've ever actually seen since probably the Civil War. And, and the alignment, uh, you know, I've looked at it every cycle, every two years, and it has not shifted since we started tracking this in 2000. And I think it's now exacerbated by a media environment where you can both, you know, communicate anonymously which frees you to say more damaging things, more odious things to each other. And there's a, a good book out now by Ezra Klein, Why We're Polarized, and uh, another one by a political scientist, named, uh, Marcus Pryor from Princeton, uh, both of whom go at uh, the very issue of how balkanized our media has become and how it feeds the division and exacerbates it uh, rather than brings us together. You know, this is where, you know, technology has been able to do amazing things in the political realm, your ability to communicate one-on-one -on -one with voters, because we can now use big data and analytics to target supporters and swing voters at an individual level and really give them very customized messages. But at the same time, uh, some of these breakthroughs in technology are driving us apart, where in the past, Walker, when you and I were growing up, things like radio and television, the main media channels then, they were unifying because we were all listening to and watching the same thing. Now we're all listening to and watching only the things that we agree with or the things that really get us riled up against the other side. It's really a problem and I believe a threat to our democracy long-term. You know, Joel, you've talked about this in terms of the, the extreme right and Newt Gingrich making alliances with evangelical voters. Do you, do you see this kind of polarization issue on the progressive left as well? I mean, are there things going on there that are 
helping to further pull us apart? Well, I think there's been, you know, there's, there's no question that um, the labor movement in America has been aligned with the Democratic Party uh, over the last few decades, but we also know the labor movement uh, and, and unions have been diminished, and they've been diminished in the public sphere at the state and uh, national level, where the influence of post-Citizens United, especially, which freed up corporations to spend unlimited amounts of money, it has meant that people with money gain more power than they ever have before. And I'm not saying this to be a populist. This is just the reality of the world we live in. You know, the notion of the super PACs and the ability of corporations to spend unlimited amounts of money have really changed our politics in a way that can diminish more than ever before. I'm not saying this, this was, you know, something brand new, but more than ever before the voices of, of voters. I think you're seeing a lot of the, the technology now being put to work at a grassroots level that has led to things like the Me Too movement. And you saw what kind of input that had from the bottom up very quickly. But consider how far behind we are in something like climate change, although I think we're going to start moving now because the voices of consumers and millennials have gotten through to the people in corporate boardrooms, all of whom have had on their websites for years the risk of climate change, they're going to have to start galvanizing and engaging more politically in this discussion because, quite simply, they know we're running out of time. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And if we as a country don't deal with this issue, their businesses are going to suffer, no matter how big they are. They will not be able to withstand that. So apart from Greta Thunberg and the vocal voices out there, if you go to the Fortune 100 companies, every one of them on their websites will cite one of their biggest risks is dealing with the risk of climate change. You know, Larry Fink in his most recent CEO letter has just said the economics have changed, that now the cost of ignoring it are far greater than the cost of addressing it. And that's going to significantly affect how investors look at companies going forward. So that's a change in the context related to what you're describing. But, you know, I think the other change in the context is what you uh, were just zeroing in on, and that is this new attitude of employees. Well, what about this kind of polarization within companies? What kind of challenge does that represent for businesses as they try to navigate sort of the, the divides within their, if, if you will, their human capital? Yeah, I, I think, you know, having done employee surveys for some of the larger corporations uh, in the country from time to time, I think that um, the main thing they actually have to learn, here's where they should take a lesson from politics, right? 
they get locked into asking the same questions they've always been asking because they think they've got this great data set and when this number moves two <laughs> points, it means something. But if the attitudes of the people who are working for you and the values of the people who are working for you are changing, you better change your questions. You know, I have a saying at my uh, company and I love working with, you know, some of the younger people who are, you know, in the company, you know, the entry level folks, as well as the mid-level and senior level. But when I go over questionnaires and surveys with them and I ask them a question and they say, well, that's the way we've always asked it. What I always tell them is that's never a good enough answer. Doesn't mean it's the wrong answer. It doesn't mean it's the right answer. But if you're asking the same question over and over again, it's got to be relevant to the time that you're and, and workforce you have today, not from 20 years ago. You know, I remember doing work for a cosmetics uh, company, one of the major brands, and they told us that one of their key attributes, and this is in this century, this is in the 21st century, Walker, right? <laughs> and one of their main attributes was makes me feel alluring. <laughs> I, I said to them, when was the last time you heard a woman say, oh, I feel so alluring? And sure enough, when we tested it in focus groups, we showed them the video of the faces of the women in the focus groups. They were some of them were watching it. You know, of course, it was an irrelevant term. It wasn't why women were using cosmetics today. There was an emotional component to that that wasn't about being alluring, a word that went out of style in the 1950s. So you've got to be creative. You've got to really use your qualitative research tools to get beneath the surface and uncover what I call, I always talk about at my firm, we uncover the hidden architecture of opinion. What's going on beneath the surface that's really shaping the attitudes and the decision frames that your audience is bringing to the table? And I think for employers, all they want, you know, they think these historical metrics are relevant, but the workforce is changing as fast as their consumer base is changing. And they ought to keep up with that the same way they do with the consumer market. We talked about the work that you do. I think our listeners would be interested in uh, in hearing a little bit about maybe how you do that and, and some of the key principles involved when you give brands guidance about how they should navigate their way through this polarized political environment these days? Great question. And one of the things we believe in, and we are a polling firm and we never make recommendations without strong quantitative data to back up our, our views. But our starting point is always listening to the voice of people. We use very innovative qualitative techniques to make sure that we get people in a free environment where they can uh, go on on a topic as long as they like. Uh, Walker, you're familiar with the ethno-journaling we did because yes. we brought you in in 2008 to work with us on this. And this is a qualitative tool of extraordinary power. You'll remember back then, Walker, we did it for President Obama's uh, re-election campaign. We did it in 2011. We talked to, well, we did journals online with 100 swing voters over six nights. If you recall, we got 1,400 pages of transcripts. I was and there was with the rich, you, I remember. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And some of the richest data and insights came out of the voices of people. And Americans today, because we're living in a hyper-technological world, they want to be listened to. They want to be heard. And if you put 10 people in a focus group for 90 minutes, at best, each person is going to get nine or 10 minutes to talk. When they are given time and space, they will pour out their thoughts, their feelings, their ideas in a way that I think makes our quantitative research so much more interesting when people uh, take surveys for us and more revealing. And what we emphasize, as I said before, when I mentioned this hidden architecture of opinion, I strongly believe in intensity. I've done research on trust, for example, where 
if you're trusted as a company at a level of seven, as opposed to six on a seven point scale, right? The payoff you get on the dimensions of trust that are important to you, being given a second chance, being believed, even if they can't validate it, you lose about 30% of value of trust if you are trusted at a six. And when was the last time, Walker, you saw any researcher separate out sevens and sixes or tens and nines and showed their clients just that difference instead of lumping together top three boxes to make everybody feel good about the number? I think intensity matters. If somebody believes something intensely, a consumer, a voter, a donor, it is really hard to pry them away from that attitude or value that they come to the table with. So that's our starting point. Our building blocks are not about what you say about yourself, but it's about what your audiences are bringing to the table and then how do you meet them where they live. And that's how we approach our work. And our corporate clients love it. They get stuff that they've never seen before. They're used to seeing cookie cutter techniques. We approach every, everything we do. And this is because of the work in politics. Look, no two elections are, are the same. And we take the same approach with any corporate challenge that we uh, face. It's interesting that you mentioned intensity because you've hit one of my pet peeves there, Joel, is top two box. Yeah. <laughs> and not actually looking at top box separately. But that's maybe a, another conversation offline. Uh, we're running out of time here, Joel. It's been a very interesting conversation, but there are a couple things I want to make sure I ask you before I let you get away. Sure. So the first of these is... How do you think the upcoming election is going to affect brands? Anything in particular they should have a lookout for in this election year? I think brands can get um, smarter about what they can learn from how people are reacting to the politics of the moment. You know, remember, it gives them a different window into their consumers, right? I don't think they should, you know, suddenly undertake a whole lot of political research, but you know, tapping into the mindset where people are, what are their pain points that are surfacing through this election? that they might be able to glean something about their own brands, you know? You know, consumers, I say this, Walker, and it's controversial. I've had some marketers uh, balk when I've said this, that consumers are more in control of your brands than ever before. And uh, the person uh, who's a big Starbucks fan said to me, well, I think Howard Schultz would object to that very much. <laughs> and I said, really? Well, how come Starbucks, a brand that was built on being the third place to have a leisurely cup of coffee, created a mobile app so people could get in and out of their cafes quicker. They did it because consumers demanded it. The way people are living, eating, and working outside the home changed, and so they had to adapt to that. I think politics creates some of those same um, opportunities. I think there are attitudinal shifts that are taking place, you know, beneath the surface of traditional consumer marketing that could open up uh, some avenues of, of communication to create greater connections with your consumers. Listen, before you get out of here, I want to ask you the, the final question, which I think everybody is interested in. Let me guess, in. Let me guess what's you, coming. You Go know ahead, it's coming, so here it is. Uh, you're looking at November. Uh, you've worked with some of the candidates in the, in the primaries. You have yep. a lot of experience in winning campaigns. Uh, what do you think is going to happen in November? Well, I'll start by saying that in the history of the country, we've only had 11 first-term presidents who sought re-election and lost. While, you know, we don't tend to like monarchies and dynasties in this country, I think voters think the presidency is a big job. And uh, our history has been that, that two terms uh, seems to be what people want to have more often than not. However, 
we are in a bit of uncharted territory here. We're seeing Trump, President Trump, have to deal with a, an unprecedented crisis. It, it hasn't worked well for him so far. The question is, if this persists from now through November, and hopefully it will not, the question will be, uh, will, will he have been able to build up enough goodwill beyond his core base to uh, win? We do have this structure called the Electoral College right now, which gives disproportionate uh, benefit to uh, states with smaller populations. It's probably one of the relics of our founding that is the most outdated. You know, when George W. Bush won uh, the presidency in 2000, but lost the popular vote, it was the first time that had happened in 112 years. And now we saw it happen twice in 16 years. It's probably not healthy for democracy. But I think um, it looks like uh, Vice President Biden is going to be the nominee. I think uh, despite everybody talking about the Democratic Party being pulled to the left, that's been a, a fallacy. And I've talked about that all the way through the primary. You know, only about 20 to 20, 25 percent of Democratic primary voters consider themselves very liberal. And about 75 percent say they're just somewhat liberal or moderate. We are tend to be a center centrist country and usually center left more than center right. I think it's going to be extremely competitive, but Donald Trump has built up an enormous war chest already. They are already campaigning uh, as in the powers of incumbency are enormous. Uh, I think we're in for a very difficult and close election again. listening to Future Proof. For all episodes and more information, visit Kantar.com or OxfordFutureOfMarketing.com. Please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe within your podcast app so you know when new episodes are released. Thank you.